visiting with us, we extend a special welcome to you. We trust that as we have gathered together, God, by his mercy and grace, will speak to our hearts and call us to greater love for him as we hear of his love for us. I'd ask you to stand as we hear the call to worship this morning from Psalm 113. There we read, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Congregation, in whom is your help? I greet you this morning, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's turn and sing number 113a in our hymnals, 113a, looking at the words of Psalm 113, hallelujah, raise, O raise, to the Lord our song of praise. Praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of God the Lord. He makes those who are bowed down to be lifted up. He exalts those who are humbled. As we're going to think about that this morning and ponder that, let's sing with understanding these five stanzas, 113a. Truly, our God is to be praised. He is the one who gives life, the one who causes us to bear much fruit for his glory as he has called us to be his own. And he speaks very clearly to us in his law. This morning, the summary of God's law found in Exodus chapter 20, where we are reminded again 
that God does care how we live. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 50 in our psalm selection. There we see a a contrast between uh, those who are uh, going... Settling on ceremonial observation, not really having a deep love for the Lord, and then those who, who claim to love the Lord but have no delight in his, in his uh, statutes, and they're what the psalmist calls hypocrites, and were warned that neither of this, uh, these approaches to God works, that God judges. He sees the heart. He knows if we're simply resting our relationship on ceremony. And he also recognizes if we, in our hearts, do not think that he calls us to live holy lives. So we want to recognize that as we read the law, God wants us to do more than just go through the motions. He wants us to worship in spirit and in truth from the heart. And he shows us what that worship looks like. And this morning we hear Exodus 20 with those thoughts in mind. God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This morning also we look at Jacob and Leah and Rachel and we talk about the love that they had, but it was not first of all for the Lord. No other gods, no other loves before the Lord. So this being the commandment that stands out before us at the heading of this giving of the law. Going on, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. A few things to note as we think about Genesis 29 this morning, that of being faithful and pure, not committing adultery, not being divided in affections. We see that very clearly here, not only in our relationship to God, but in our relationship with those around us. To be honoring those in authority over us, God establishes the authority insofar as they govern in keeping with God's word. We submit to them, even when it may demand that we give 
that which we don't really want to let go of. We'd rather keep all of the things we have for ourselves, but we live in society together communally and think of how we can then function in that capacity for the good of the larger body of humanity, we might say. So this morning as we worship, we gather together, we remember that God has called us together that we might worship him, that we might live for him. We don't do that as we ought, and we would think that a holy God would not then want to draw near to us, and yet John chapter 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He spoke the truth, and he showed what it looked like to be gracious and kind. In him we find our pardon for sin. He came to die that our sins might be wiped away and that we might live in him and then live in that gracious way to those around us and before our God. May God help us to do that as we think upon our lives and the reason that we are to live for his glory. I'm going to respond with that insert that's in your bulletin. We're learning this song this month. Uh, the, the song is uh, o Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. We sang it last week. We're going to sing it again this week. It is a, a fitting song to, to speak of where is our forgiveness found, where is our hope found. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the organist to play it through once, and then we will sing those three stanzas in the insert, Christ, Our Hope in life and death.
Let's turn to the Lord now in time of congregational prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you for the rains that have come after some time. We thank you for the way that you nourish the earth and the way that you nourish us, giving us what we need when we need it. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you again today. We don't appreciate this time always as we should, yet we do want to take a moment in our prayers to give thanks and to reflect upon what a blessing it is to be gathered in worship. We hear reports from missionaries whom we support and the challenges that they face, just how important it is for the Word of God to be set before the people Today, we're asked to pray for Reverend Landazuri in Ecuador and for their work in that country. Lord, we pray for a greater Christian presence there in Ecuador, for protection for their children who are educated in non-Christian public or private schools. We pray for a Christian school in their midst. Lord, provide stability for them, even as you Give stability to us through churches that preach the word and through Christian schools and homes grounded upon your word. We pray that our homes, the homes represented here, would prioritize you, that we would seek to serve you in all that we do and the way that we speak. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for our sins, things that we've already said today, thoughts that we've had, actions that we've taken that we're a sin against you and against one another. Lord, you would have us to be renewed, to be made alive, free from sin and free to follow your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that as we look at the home today in this passage in Genesis that is before us from your word and the many problems there with Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban, we And we would learn to examine our own lives and confess that our lives are not what they should be. Help us to put you at the center. That love for you might be expressed, might be shown first and foremost, and that that would then lead us to love and to express that love in word and deed and even in thought towards each other. We pray for that love to capture the heart of this nation. Lord, we pray for renewal. Pray for stability in our leadership, for integrity in our leaders, that they would understand again that they serve at your command and that they are to lead in such a way that the country would be helped, not just in the way that our hearts might want to go, but in the path that we ought to go. Lord, help us to be a nation under God. We praise you, our ever-loving God who hears and cares for us. We thank you for providing for us, for gifting us with so many different abilities represented here in this congregation. May we use these abilities to serve one another. We thank you for changed hearts that desire to serve, to desire to show love to each other. We thank you for the caregivers that 
Help us care for our loved ones who have that need. We think of Barb J, and we think of Debbie, and we think of Beth, and the caregivers involved in, in participating in those places where our loved ones are, that you would grant them measure of grace, that they would exercise patience and kindness and a listening ear, and our loved ones would be encouraged. May we do that too, Lord, here, listening one to another, caring for each other. Give us joy in being together. Give us a desire to honor others above ourselves and to recognize that as we are doing so, we are benefiting. We are growing together, growing more into the image that you would have us to bear. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with seminarians too who come here during the school year and as they're away from us now, we pray for your protection over them, their families. Pray for the Hofflands in Ontario. Bless their time there that Daniel would be learning and growing in that the call of the ministry or the understanding of what that call consists of. Pray for Ben and Natalie, the Verdonks too, as they uh, come home again from Mexico and then head on to their assignment uh, in the coming days. Protect them and their travels uh, back from Mexico. Lord, we thank you for protecting us in this week again, for providing for us. We think of how there are many who are affected by the fires that are, t- that are consuming large parts of Canada and the smoke that that creates too and how that has congested much of the northeast. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would send rain there and would cause those fires to go out and that they might be able to get those under control to contain them. Lord, we rely rely upon you for that. We soon see how just how inadequate we are in our response to these massive events. It reminds us again of our dependence upon you and the way that you control uh, the climate and provide what is needed. Father, we pray that you would protect our hearts and our minds even in this hour, that as we hear your word, you would Cause us to be attentive, that there would be greater holiness kindled in our hearts, greater love for you, for the forgiveness you show and the love that you show to us. We ask that you would hear us in all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals again to number 9B. Toward the beginning of the hymnal here, number nine, selection B, wholehearted thanksgiving to thee will I bring. We're going to stand and sing those four stanzas of number nine B.
main. Let's turn in God's Word this morning together to Genesis chapter 29. As you're turning there, we reflect upon those words we've just sung. Truly, God is worthy of praise. He takes note of our affliction. He takes note of our need, and he provides just what we need. That's what I want us to think about this morning, the love, the amazing love of God the Father, how he shows us such kindness and of how we are to praise him for it, how we're to look to him We're going to see that that was not exactly a strong point of Jacob or Leah or Rachel, not to even mention Laban, but that it ought to have been. Last week, we we saw Jacob coming to Haran to find a wife. He received a wife from his uncle Laban, not the one he had agreed to work seven years to acquire. He received Leah, the older daughter, and only after agreeing to work seven more years for Rachel... And did he receive her? And we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. We talked a little bit about that last week. Leah, the unloved, will listen for that theme again this week. One commentator says about these verses that we're about to read, quote, In this story of polygamy, the pitfalls and humiliations of this practice argue eloquently against the, pra- against the practice, unquote. I'm not sure the word eloquently is exactly what we're going to see here this morning, but I think it grabbed my attention when, when it was said by this commentator that polygamy, more than one spouse, is not God's plan. And we're going to see just how much trouble it creates, how much hardship, how much difficulty, and what's all going on in the background uh, as we look at this passage together. Direct your attention to verse 31 of Genesis 29, where we begin to read in God's own holy word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son Also, she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. 
Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So far, the reading of God's own holy word this morning, he had his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it. Dear people of God, as I studied this passage this week, a song from long ago came to mind. It, I didn't even know it was in there. I didn't even know it was in my head, but the, the lyrics, and I'm not going to tell you who the singer was because I'm rather embarrassed that it's in my head, but the refrain is this, will a little more love make it Right. Well, the characters in this story are driven by love. They think, well, if I, if I love just a little bit more, maybe I'll get what I want, what I love. But the love that they have, as we're going to see this morning, is not where we might hope it would be among the saints, namely for the Lord first and foremost, but rather for self and for their plans and for God to work for them. It's a shocking passage, really. It's shocking for what it contains, and it's shocking that it's in God's holy word. You think to yourself, well, if men wrote the Bible, they certainly would leave this out. These are supposed to be the good guys. What do we have here? When we come to a passage like this, we wonder what to make of it. It's so earthy. It seems so out of place in the Bible. We don't know if we should investigate the facts or maybe look away, maybe turn away. Probably not something we read around the table a lot. The Bible, remember, says that we shouldn't even speak of actions and things that are done which make light of God's commands, and certainly that is taking place here in the lives of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. They're not living in line with God's word. Jacob, in particular, the word at the beginning you remember in Scripture, the man shall have one wife, Genesis 2.24. Well, how do we... 
begin looking at this passage this morning? Well, first I want us to recognize our love of self in this passage. There's a lot of pressing forward in the text of these individuals. They're trying to control the situation. They're trying to gain favor, gain love in a very complex and complicated situation. Leah and Rachel both loved Jacob, not to mention themselves, and they competed for his love and We recognize that couples are supposed to be committed to each other exclusively. Well, how does that work in this situation? Well, not well. That's how we can summarize that. But is, well, the question that we ask further, is there a desire to love God above all else? Is that the higher desire that we see in the lives of these Saints, well, to ask the question is to answer it. There's not that desire. Leah's focus is on Jacob. Rachel's focus is on Jacob. Jacob's focus is on Rachel. And we don't hear a lot of focus on God, talking to God, at least not in the context of asking for his leading, but rather after the fact saying, oh, yes, thank you for that. Thank you for this. It's not exactly that simplistic, but I I put it that way so we can kind of work our way through the text. These individuals each want what they want, and when we focus, friends, on what we want, that is, when I love myself and you love yourself more than God, life quickly gets out of whack, quickly gets imbalanced and messy. Tonight we're going to be seeing what it looks like to be made in God's image and what we're made for, made for God, for His glory, to make much of Him. You hear me say that often because I think that needs to be our focus. And today, in our day, we need to hear that over and over and over again. Why am I here? What do I exist for? For God's glory, to make much of Him. Our passion for lesser loves, which is often very great passion, will not satisfy our deepest longing. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Now, we can love things in this world. We can invest in things in this world. But when that becomes imbalanced and when our love is so fixated upon the world and we're loving the world and the things of the world, we're pushing God to the side. We're to be living out a heavenly ethic here on earth. Reminding one another of who is king and the kingdom and in whose kingdom we live, namely in God's kingdom. But our love quickly becomes idolatrous. We, we love the things of earth more than we love God. And when God is not loved supremely, he's not loved rightly. We, we, I, I almost was, tempt, was, was going to say when God is not loved, he's not uh, supremely, he's not loved at all. But then we'd have to expound on that. But you can maybe think about that today. What does that mean when God is not loved supremely? How can we say he's not loved at all? Think of the passages in James and elsewhere in Scripture that would would illustrate or would support that. Well, though we might not think our lives are as messed up as Leah and Rachel and Jacob, this, this, friends, is a picture of the infinite number of ways sin can mess with us emotionally psychologically, relationally. 
Like the little girl picking those petals on the daisy, children, remember, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. We become very concerned about whether we've got that acceptance, that love from another person because it's not what we might want it to be, not as intense or not as focused in this particular area or not, not meeting this particular need and there's insecurity, but that's, that comes from the fact that we are not often walking with the Lord and sensing his love and knowing that he provides all that we need at every, time, at every moment such that we can live in the difficulties of life with a confidence, with a peace that passes all understanding. We're not to be divided in our love. Well, we're getting ahead of the story, though. Let's get back to the, to the narrative here this morning. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Love and life are almost exclusively horizontal in this story. Now, again, we'll, we'll see some comments which are to the contrary, but, but for purposes of setting up this, this consideration, love and life are almost exclusively horizontal in this, in this story. Leah makes some comments that we want to look at towards the end of the sermon this morning that would perhaps say otherwise, but the characters mention the Lord, but there is little expression of love for the Lord though he clearly cares for them. Leah is unable to have children. Her hope is that her husband will now love her because she has given him children. Now certainly he will love me, she says, as she bore Reuben for Jacob. She has a second son. The Lord has listened and given, her, given me another son. And now, now Jacob will surely Take notice and love me. Then she has a third son, and she says, Well, I've borne him three sons. Certainly now he will be attached to me. Certainly now I'll, I'll receive that love which I'm looking for, that full love, that complete love from my husband, that which is going to satisfy my every desire. Certainly now he'll give that to me. Then a fourth son comes along, and she's... It's hard to say what she's thinking in this, con- in this comment, but she's, she is shifting her focus a bit there in verse 35. She has a fourth son and a bit different response. She says, this time I will, what? Praise the Lord. <laughs> Rachel wants the love of her husband to herself, and she now comes into the picture. We're going to get back to the comment on Leah's Leah's comment there in verse 35, but let that just set for a moment. Rachel wants the love of her husband exclusively, and in the right way of thinking, that's how it should be. But things are complicated here, so she decides, I need to secure that love, and she's barren, we read there in the outset of our passage, verse 31, and so she gives her maidservant to Jacob as though it was to keep his love, to make sure his affections don't move over to her sister. And one wonders, did she think that that was necessary? Did she see something shallow in Jacob that, oh, if I don't give him children, whether by myself or by my maidservant, he won't love me anymore? We don't know, but it is rather interesting. Jacob is a rather shallow character at this point in the the narrative. That's what she does, and she 
says, I'm barren, opening of chapter 30, and she blames Jacob for her barrenness. He says to him, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob tells her to take it up with God. He says, God is to blame. And to be sure, he opens and closes the womb. But there's a rather strange dynamic here. Jacob says, well, don't come to me with this. Go to God. Well, there's, there's some, some, something right about that, isn't there? Go to, go to the Lord. He's the one who will hear and answer. I can't. I can't open and close, I can't open the womb. And we see that God's love is being questioned by almost everyone in the story because he's not doing what they want. Well, before we move on, let me just say this. There's something we must not forget in our advanced scientific age. Our scientific age tempts us to believe that science can give us what we want. God's, God is really irrelevant. We hear people talking about family planning, if we want to have children, when we're going to have children, how many we're going to have, whether they're going to have blue eyes or brown eyes or green eyes or whatever. And science promises us, oh, well, we'll see to it that you can have all those things right when you want them. And why do I bring that up? Because it happens, doesn't it, people, that we ignore God. We go at it with each other and we say, well, we're not going to talk with God. We're not going to bring our, our concerns, our, our pleas to God, but we get angry with one another. And when it doesn't work out the way we want, we, we look for another out for our anger. Well, Rachel says Jacob is the problem. Jacob says in so many words, God's the problem, but neither of them goes to God. What happened when Isaac saw that his wife, Rebekah, was barren? Do you remember back in chapter 25, verse 21? What does it say? When he saw that she was barren, he did what? He prayed to the Lord for her. Jacob's not doing that. At least not so far as we can tell in our passage. He's not going to the Lord He's saying the Lord's to blame, but he doesn't offer prayer for them. I don't want to make too much of that, but at the very least, we ought to reflect upon that silence. Why is that not happening? Shouldn't that be happening? Isn't that how it is to go when we have needs? Something for us to think about as we look through these verses. When we love ourselves and make plans for ourselves, we don't really consult God, we may thank him if we get what we want, knowing that we should really do that, but that reveals that God is less than what he must be in our lives. And when life disappoints us, doesn't give us what we want, and there will be disappointments in life, what, what are we, what's our reaction? What do we do? Well, we, we take out our frustration on whoever's closest. We share our anger and our frustration Why? Why with those closest to us? Well, because we've invested in them and we want them to give us what we need, what we we want. And maybe we don't go to God because we feel that that wouldn't be right or appropriate to ask of him. Or we're ashamed of our attitudes or our actions. As I said, we often take out our frustrations on those closest to us because we've set our hopes on them, sometimes on them more than on God. They will satisfy me. They can satisfy me. 
Or more accurately, they exist to satisfy me. That's why they're there. We put ourselves at the center of our world and everything soon exists for our own happiness without even realizing that that's how we're acting. And this, this is disastrous. And as I said, there are nearly an infinite number of ways in which we can be disappointed when we try to control things, control the world to our end. There's so many ways that we're affected emotionally, physically, mentally, and so on. Well, before we move on, though, to our second point, just to comment on Rachel's statement after her maidservant Bilhah bore a son for Jacob. Rachel names him Dan, in effect saying, God has rendered judgment upon me. He's... he's uh, looked to me, and he's not against me, for he's heard my cry, and he's given me a son. Rachel says, it's not my, not my fault. I mean, God's giving a son to my maidservant proves that. God's not against me. God did for her what she wanted, and therefore she felt proven innocent. There's a lot of room for maturation, maturity, uh, growth and maturity in all of the persons in this story. Just one more comment. I, I, I had to summarize so much here because I, I, this would have been a six-part sermon, but I'm trying to give it to you in one. Just one more comment. Bill, when Bilhah bears another son, Rachel names him Naphtali, which sounds like Hebrew for wrestling, really expresses how Rachel's feeling at this point. She feels like she was wrestling with God and her sister for Jacob's affections, where her hope was for complete satisfaction in Jacob. And in an indirect way, and probably not totally understood to her because she's rationalizing her actions, she questions God's love for her because life is not going the way she wants it to go. Well, there's more that could be said under this first point, but we'll move on to the second point. When we, when we examine our own hearts and study our goals for life, we soon must see our need for God's loving presence, for his faithful presence, because very often we're, we're way off the beam as we look at our goals. We're very fixated upon ourselves when only God can give life, when only his plans for us are just what we need. God seems to be in the background in this story. I don't know if you felt that. I certainly felt that way as I was reading through the text. He's just kind of brought in every now and again. As Leah and Rachel put themselves forward trying to control their future and control the affections of their husband or direct the affections of their husband toward themselves, but it is God who's sovereignly fulfilling his promises through the actions of sinful people. We don't want to miss that. He promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to Jacob that there would be many descendants, doesn't he? We've looked at that already in our study in Genesis. It's the Lord who saw, it's in the Lord who saw unloved Leah. Note that in verse 31. The Lord is very much present in the story. Chapter 29, verse 31. The Lord saw unloved Leah and opened her womb. Then in verse 17 of chapter 30, it is the Lord who listened to unloved Leah so that she might conceive and bear another son. It is God who remembers Rachel, verse 22 of chapter 30. He remembers, he listens to Rachel, opens her womb that she might give birth to a son. There's markers throughout. God is present, and he's present in all of these things. But there specifically, it's very clear, the narrator wants us to understand, these folks are not in control. God is the one who's working, and he's working out his promises. 
It's his loving presence that keeps this situation from ending in disaster. Think, of, think further of how he's exerted his sovereignty in this story. Jacob had plans to have a family through whom? Rachel. That's his plan. And what do we read of Rachel? In the very beginning, 29 verse 31. She's barren. And you think, now wait a minute, what's going on here? Is there not going to be offspring? Jacob is continuing, and this is what we need to understand. Jacob is continuing to try to establish the promise through his means, but the Lord continued to remind him, no, I am in control, and I will work my purposes for my glory. I will show love to the unloved. The world will not stand over against My plans, if you want to expand that out, how do we see Christians unloved by the world but loved by God? He says, I will have a people for myself. And I will do what needs to be done to bring them to myself. The Lord continues to remind Jacob his way is not supreme. He has to submit to the Lord. God's continually working on these three to lead them to love him more than themselves and their plans. He does that with you and with me also. He wants us to think about that. What do we love most? Our plans, our goals, maybe our spouse, maybe our job, maybe anything else besides God that we give more effort and attention to. Very convicting it was for me in studying this passage. God tells us that we're not to have two masters. Son of God, Jesus Christ, tells us that, doesn't he, in Matthew. He says, you cannot have two masters. You cannot serve two masters, Matthew 6.24. If you try to have two, here's what's going to happen. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus knows our hearts. He's been tempted. He took on flesh, tempted in every way as we had. He understood that he had to deny himself and to take up that cross and follow his Father. So we hear discipleship. That's what it means. Denying ourselves, submitting to the Father. It's not unaware of the battles that we deal with, but he warns us that trying to serve two masters won't, won't work. If you love self, you will despise God. That's a starting point for the Christian life. You and I must not love anything more than God. Nothing will bring the satisfaction that humble submission to him and to his word will bring. That's the basic message here. We've, We've all messed up. We do so daily. But God has not given up on us. He continues to work his plan and his purpose in us to show us ourselves to show us our need of his loving presence in our lives. He disciplines, he directs, and above all, he provides a way of deliverance from the judgment we deserve. He delivers us out of bondage to sin that we might live for him. I want to ask you if you noticed this in the story. It, it didn't dawn on me at first, but did you notice something about how Jacob is going to continue in the same, the same path that he's on in the story? How do we know that? How do we see that? Well, listen, think about this. What do we not hear about Jacob? 
He's the only one in the story not calling out to God. You see, I said it was a little simplistic at the beginning that they're not looking to God. Well, Leah does speak about that. Rachel does acknowledge God. But nowhere in this narrative does Jacob... Is Jacob heard by the Lord, listened to by the Lord? Why? Well, we've got to assume he's not calling out to him. Leah and Rachel begin to acknowledge God. Leah in chapter 29, verse 35. Rachel in chapter 30, verse 22. But no mention of the Lord hearing Jacob because apparently he's not calling out to him. Jacob had some maturing to do. What's going on in his heart and his life? We don't know. Self-pity, perhaps, for Uncle Laban's deceiving him, giving him this wife that he didn't want. Maybe because of the difficulty in the situation, he feels a little slighted by God. Didn't think that, or maybe he thought he couldn't go to God because of the decisions he had made. But remember what we heard last week. We can go to God. We must go to God because he alone can deliver us. From our own sin and from the despair that we have often from those who sin against us. He says, call upon me and I will listen. He wants to hear from you. He wants his people to be known as those who call upon the Lord. He wants you to love him more than anything else. Well, we have to be brief Our final point, at least more brief than I wanted to be, but that of God's impartial love, thirdly, giving thanks for God's impartial love. God doesn't play favorites. He saw that Leah was unloved, verse 31, and he opened her womb, showing her favor. Towards the end of the story, he sees Rachel's despair, verse 22, chapter 30, and he opens her womb. He doesn't say, well, it's going to be Leah and not Rachel. It's going to be Rachel and not Leah. He shows love to both, recognizing their hurt and their anguish, their distress. After all the crazy posturing and attempts to control their own destiny or their own lives, one would think the Lord would just say, I've had it. <laughs> I'm going to the Hittites, <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm going to some other group. But he doesn't. He loves his people and does all that is required to deliver even to the giving of his own son. When we tell people that God will punish sin, they say, well, I don't want a God like that. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it means this. Well, I, I want a God who overlooks sin and lets me have my way. The only way they will have God, if you will, is if they can sit on the throne and God will serve them. That's not what's happening in this narrative. God is not serving Rachel and Leah and Jacob for their purposes, but to fulfill his promises in the midst of the sin. And he has to go to great lengths, as he does, even as we see in the gospel, in sending his only son. God, who is rich in mercy, offers a Savior who bears the punishment of sin. What is required of us? To repent and say, Lord, I love you more than anything or anyone else. I love you more than my sin. I love you more than my plans. Will you forgive me? 
To which the Lord says, come, I have loved you. I have provided forgiveness full and free. Doesn't matter how much the world loves you or if you feel lovable. God's love is impartial. He loves the unloved. He listens to the cries of those who call upon him. There's no lesser people before God. We talked about this last week. How must Leah have felt that that fifth wheel, that extra wife, that unloved wife? But there are no lesser people before God. Perhaps you feel unnoticed. Perhaps you think others have a better chance of being loved because they're more gifted, more talented. They're closer, certainly, to God, closer to his throne because look at, after all, look how, how, how worthy they are. They have so much to offer. I have so little. God doesn't take us to himself based upon what we have to offer. He gives us what we need. And his love is truly amazing, full and free. And as we close, I want you to notice Leah's comment. I said I would refer to it back in verse 35 of chapter 29 as she gives birth to her fourth son. Who was he? Who is Judah? Who is he? He's the father of the messianic line, isn't he? From Leah, the unloved. And she says more than she knows when she responds, this time I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord for he has offered salvation. He is the one who satisfies for all of my feelings of inadequacy, all of my feeling of unloved. Isn't that where our focus ought to be? Upon the Messiah, the one who's come in the line of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ? The one through whom we come to the Father and we are loved as his own children? We should marvel at God's amazing love in Christ. We should praise him. We should seek our satisfaction in him. Not for what he gives us, but because he is so loving. Because he is so generous in his love. He's done everything. To bring us to him. And when we see that happening in our hearts, we know that God is maturing us, that we're changing. Jacob still is apparently unmoved. Leah does this, nothing said of Jacob. Rachel does this, nothing said of Jacob. The maidservants Bear Jacob children. Interesting, the term is they're Jacob's children, showing that God fulfills a promise. Nothing from Jacob. What's going on? Well, we'll see more as the story continues. Let's turn to the Lord now in prayer. Father in heaven, we recognize ourselves so much in this narrative, how we seek to control and to plan and to call upon you to fulfill what we want. And you patiently, so patiently and lovingly work, provide for us to blot out all our sins which render us guilty before you. You blot them all out in boundless grace and say, I want you to love me. 
above all else, for I am your life. Lord, help us to mature in that. We all need that. We do until our dying day. Lead us and guide us by your Spirit. To, yes, love those around us and to do so in a way that brings honor and glory to you, which means that we would set you first, that your definition of love, that your call to love others better than ourselves would be worked out in our lives, that we would humble ourselves before you knowing that we don't, we don't need anything else because we have you. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Number 240, O love of God, how strong and true, eternal and yet ever new, uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought. We're going to stand to sing those four stanzas of number 240.
Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for that great and deep love. We thank you that we have the privilege to impart that to our children. We pray for, the, for that work that is done at Crown Point Christian to that end, that our children would see your great love and desire to live for you even as they love those around them. As we take offering for that cause, we ask your blessing upon that message as it goes forth. From that institution, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God be your exceeding joy, Christ, your only hope, the Holy Spirit, your unfailing comforter in all your worship and all your work and all your troubles until Jesus comes. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen.